1 John 2, 6, and 27. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. But the anointing that you receive from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it is taught you, abide in him. The word of the Lord. Amen. Uh, guess we'll dismiss our school-age kids. Headed to the back. Don't let them run all the way out. While they're doing that, let me invite you to open your Bible, if you brought one uh, with you, to uh, the Epistles of John, First John. And we've been in a uh, series in First John for a couple weeks now, and we're going to keep... Keep working through. Uh, keep working through this. I love that song we just sang about uh, just the goodness of God and how reminds you of the psalmist, doesn't it? When he says, "You know, where can I go from your presence? If I go up into the heavens, that's where you're at. And if I descend down to the depths of Sheol, that's where you're at. Just everywhere I go, almost like." He's saying the same thing everywhere I go, that the goodness of God is just right there following me. As we jump into uh, John's epistle, uh, just a little bit of context. You know, John wrote his epistle um, some 40, 50, 60 years, right, after, after Jesus' death on the cross. Most theologians put it at the very end. And um, the first three, the synoptic gospels, were written pretty quickly and then they came and got John because the synoptic gospels really deal with uh, a theology of, of what we believe and what Christ has accomplished on our behalf. And those are true and necessary. But it becomes a little skeletal. It becomes a little, um, you know, without flesh or heart it almost seems. And so John came back and wrote as, uh, as one really focusing on the humanity of Jesus and his relationship with us. And some errors had been happening in the church, and this is what his letters are for. And they're going to rebuke some false teaching. But he's going to touch in the secret that I want to, I want to really focus on today. Um, this idea of really walking with Jesus. You'll notice, too, in the Easter narrative, um, as we're in uh, the Eastertide, the, 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 the 50 days following Easter, that no one really believed at first. No one. My, my, my favorite story is that on the, that road to Emmaus afterwards. And, you know, Jesus is talking to them and they're like, like, are you the only one that doesn't know what has been happening? And he's like, well, tell me about what's happening. And they tell him this. And, and they even go on to explain to Jesus. Now, now the women had told us that, that he's not there anymore. And, uh, and then even, even, even Peter and John, they, they say the same thing, that he's not there. And, and, and they just couldn't make sense of it. Even with that testimony, these disciples still left and were going back home, so discouraged and in their grief. And they didn't really believe until Jesus himself showed up in person. It was so hard to comprehend. They believed, but their belief was not complete. They had to learn to live in light of the resurrection. And I feel this is what John's going to touch on today. Something that we all feel a sense of struggle in. How do we live in light of the resurrection on a Tuesday? 
not just on Easter Sunday when everything is like, yeah, yeah, and rah, rah, and there's flowers, and everybody's putting on their best, and we got the new dresses and all the things. How do do, do we live on a Thursday morning when things aren't going right at work, and when we get discouraged, and when we're prone to um, frustration? And you see this in those early disciples. What, What did Peter do? Peter went back fishing. Not sure if he was just grieving or trying to clear his head. Fishing's good for those things. Or if he'd gone back to his old way of life before Jesus and all those followed him. But regardless, his life currently, as he goes back fishing, wasn't impacted by the truth that Jesus had actually closed the deal and beaten the grave and disarmed death. Paul says he took the sting out of death. Not that it didn't hurt anymore, but he took the venom out of it. it, it he removed the paralyzing fearful quality of death itself and John's going to give us here in chapter 2 really in 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 this entire letter he's going to give us the secret sauce the magic formula if there is such a thing and he bookends chapter 2 with it in verse 6 we read a minute ago whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way that he walked and he's going to tell us a lot there in that new commandment. He's just saying this is not a new thing. This is, this is not just, this is, this, is not, this is the same thing that we've been saying. That you can be transformed from the inside out. And then over in verse 27. But the anointing that you receive from him abides in you. Then in verse 28. And now little children abide in him. So that when he appears you may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. Let me pray. And as I pray, would you just calm your hearts and minds now? And would you ask the God who opened up his mouth and spoke everything into existence, the God of the Bible, would you ask him to speak to you on a very personal level? God, I thank you for your word and your truth. Would you speak to us? Would you stir our hearts? Would you help us to lock eyes with you, to focus on you? And in doing so, Holy Spirit, help us to see Jesus. And Jesus, we know you'll continue to point us to the Father. In Jesus' name that we pray, amen. You see already just in the three verses we read, and there's more of it in chapter 2, and Jason covered some of chapter 2 last week. But 21 times in this letter, John says the secret sauce to the Christian life is being with Jesus. Now, I know that sounds just so oversimplified. But I, but I want to really look, what does it mean to abide? Maybe your translation says remain. What does it mean? Why, why is John so hung up on this idea of abiding? 21 times. You ever had to tell your kid something more than once? More than twice? Start raising your voice a little bit every time until they know we mean business. 21 times, John, it's almost like, you know, Grandpa John, the pastor, is grabbing us by the shoulders and looking us dead in the eye and says, listen, if you don't hear anything else that I, that I say in this letter, if you don't remember anything about the Christian life that Jesus taught us and all the things, I want you to remember this. you got to be with Jesus. The secret is walking with Jesus. The secret is remaining with Jesus. The secret is abiding with Jesus. The the secret is, is 
being at the table with Jesus. Now, abiding takes work. You know, things like worry and fear and striving, those don't take focus. Those come naturally on their own. Even as Jason talked about last week, the pursuit of the world and the flesh and the devil, we don't have to do anything to stir those things up. They're going to be in front of us all the time anyway. What we do have to work on is this of lifting our head above all of that and blocking eyes with Jesus and focusing on Jesus. This word abide is minnow in the Greek, very common in 1 John. Abiding is this key fellowship word for John and for, and for the Lord Jesus. He, he talked about it a lot in John uh, 14 and 15, really throughout his farewell discourse. And while it's true that only believers in Christ can have everlasting life and have God's love abiding in them, it is not true that we are always abiding in Christ. That's what takes the effort of us living in the actual reality of all that the gospel has done for us. This passage in 1 John is this appeal to believers to continue to abide in Christ so that when he returns, we have confidence and not regret. So I want to answer a couple questions. What what does it look like to abide? What is abiding? How do we know if we're abiding? How do we know if we're not abiding? To start off, there's... Let's go back a little bit and back to the future fashion. Let's go back some 60 years from this writing to the actual farewell discourse of Jesus and his disciples. Remember, this starts in John 13 and goes all the way through John 17. We talked about that probably a year ago as we preached through that. And Jesus is the first one that starts talking about this. And he connects abiding with him to this metaphor, if you remember, of the vine. The vine and its branches. The vine's actually the, the, the trunk of Of the plant that's in the vine comes the nourishments and it spreads out to the branches uh, to actually end up being uh, producing fruit. In verse 4 of John 15, you don't have to go back, but just listen. Abide in me, Jesus says, and I in you, this is Jesus talking to his disciples. As a branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. As the branch is abiding in the vine, it's able to produce fruit. Similarly, Jesus is going to remind those disciples and remind us even today, and John's reminding us again today, as you abide in me, you're going to produce, you're going to produce fruit. And if you're not connected to me, there's going to be no fruit. And certainly, the disciples had walked with Jesus. They understood this very well. The metaphor is very real to the disciples. And if you remember... It's so real to them. This is such a great place. Even though the, the oldest, and I, I told you when we uh, talked through this passage uh, a year ago, that the, the oldest grapevine in the world is, is in Palestine still. Now let's go back even further. This is how real this, this place was known for the grapes. You remember when God had given them the promised land and they come up to it and they send the spies in? You remember that? And the, the, the ten were bad and the, the two were good. And I'm trying not to sing the song in my head, but that's, that's what's there. 
and, and they send them in. You remember they come back and they give the report about the land. You know, it had been this land that was flowing with milk and honey. What does that actually look like? And they came back and they give the report of the grapes. You remember this? That the grapes were so big, like our watermelons, that they had to carry them on poles suspended between two men. That's how big the grapes were. These grapes were ginormous. Can you, can you imagine? I don't, that's not a word, but it's, it, that, that's what they were. They were, they were ginormous. And so they, they came back and they reported these huge grapes. And they reported this really promised land was, was actually what it had been promised to be, as, as God does. And remember, that was such good news. But the good news didn't last for long. It was followed by a report that there were giants in the land. And the giants probably didn't want to share their grapes with us. And out of fear, they decided not to go where God was leading. You remember that? And they made a tragic mistake because they thought the battle actually depended upon their strength, their strategy. And even though Joshua and Caleb argued differently, as a people, they failed to depend on God and it cost them the promised land. And the consequence was a generation had to die while they wandered in circles in the wilderness. They decided on that day that the challenge was too big and the giants were too great. They failed to depend on God, which led to this entire generation passing away. And this is the context in which Jesus is speaking. They're in Palestine. He's talking to his disciples who have this history. And he's warning them not to fall into the same trap. Apart from me, you can do nothing. In other words, remember the ancestors, and they decided not to join up with me, and, and they faced the consequences. And I want to extend this to you. Apart from me, you can do nothing. As long as you're connected to the vine, it's going to be great. You're going to bear fruit, and you're going to bear more fruit, and you're going to bear much fruit. This is the context Jesus is talking, and he's giving them the secret to this forward-facing Christian life for them. Remain in me. Abide in me. And I and you, and you're going to bear much fruit. Fruit with compounded interest. You think these grapes are big. Just wait till you see the spiritual fruit that's created in your own life when you depend on me. When you're connected to the true vine. Back to our text today. Just in this chapter. Those who abide, Jesus promises, in verse 6, walk just like Jesus walked. In verse 9, they love their brother and sister. In verse 14, they overcome the evil one. In verse 17, they do the will of God. In verse 25, if you abide, you have eternal life. In verse 27, when you abide, you walk in truth. In verse 28, when you abide, you have confidence before God. When you abide, you have righteousness or rightness before God. So what is abiding exactly? First, abiding, and I want you to write these phrases down. Because I think just the word abiding, it's not in our vernacular, it's not in our vocabulary, so we forget what it actually looks like. And we think it's like maybe some kumbaya with Jesus. I don't know what we think it is, but a lot of times if I can just speak from my own heart, I, I miss it. Abiding is one, constant connection. First phrase, constant. Abiding is constant connection. Talking with Jesus from the moment you wake up until you close your eyes at night. And even sometimes as you sleep, you wake up in the middle of the night. You ever do this and something's on your heart? or you're, I, This is what I do. I did last night. Lord, why am I awake at 3 o'clock? Is there anybody I need to pray for? Is there anything you need to remind me of? Just 
we have a bad habit of leaving Jesus in our devotional time. Like the 10 minutes in the morning or the 15 or however holy you are, 30 or whatever it is. We open the Bible and we read and we're in, we're in Leviticus. And we're like, what in the world? Lord Jesus, you know, make this real somehow in my life today. And then we close the Bible and that was Jesus' time. And now the rest of the time is, is my time. But, but that's not how Jesus talks about it all. He, he says, you know, unless you remain in me all the time, not just devotional time, you're not going to be able to do anything. At least not anything worthwhile, worth, worth, worth lasting. Can, can I invite you, encourage you to just let Jesus walk with you all the day? Not just in the devotional time. Let him interrupt your day. Let him interrupt your places and spaces. Let him ride with you to work. Sweat with you as you work. Maybe share a joke with him. Share your frustrations with him. Cry your tears to him. Share your pain with him. Thank him for the good gifts in your life. He is the constant companion. This is... The constant connection. This illustration breaks down, but think about just this loving spouse. This relationship. How he, how a man longs to be with his bride. Maybe he's, he's on a work trip and he just can't wait to get back home because life is so much sweeter when experienced with his bride. And the sunsets are more beautiful and the shows are funnier. And the food is more delicious. And the tears don't hurt as much. It's this picture of constant connection. Friends, do we have that kind of relationship? Or do we, or do we, live Je- do we leave Jesus here when we leave? Or do we leave him in our devotion time in the morning or in our bedtime prayers? When, when abiding is this invitation for constant connection, we certainly see this in the life of Jesus. Constantly connected to the Father. Then, number two, abiding is more than that. It's not just constant connection. It's unbroken communion. The best example of unbroken communion, again, is Jesus and and the Father. He, He often got away from the crowd to spend time with the Father. Yes, his commitment to an unhurried and uninterrupted time with with God was obvious. He, He talked about it all the time. He was always disappearing to go spend time with the Father. But it was also obvious that he had this constant connection and this unbroken communion with the Father. He says in John 5 that the Son can do nothing by himself. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing on his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son does also. Or in John 12, Jesus says, I don't even speak on my own behalf. For I have not spoken, in verse 49... I've not spoken of my own authority, but the Father who sent me has given me a commandment. And what I say and what I speak comes from him. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. Jesus walked with the Father as this form of intimate friendship. Constant connection and unbroken communion. Now, most of us really don't know what that means, friendship. At least not as scripture would define friendship. We call people friends we've only met once or never even met. 
Facebook is the new LinkedIn. I've got more friends on Facebook than I ever cared to really meet in my life. I just, or I can even know, I don't even know who these people, much less care what they had for dinner last night or that they're at the Garth concert. You know, it's just one of those things. I was reading this week, Tim Keller defines real Christian friendship. And this is important because it, 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 it paints a picture of the friendship between Jesus and the Father, and it also paints the picture that Jesus is offering us to have with, with him, that, that we can have the same. Jesus invites us into this very same sort of friendship. In John 15 and verse, and verse 14, Jesus says this. It's so powerful. You are my friends. If you do what I've asked you to do, if I do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant doesn't know what the master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from the Father, I have made known to you. Jesus invites us into this friendship. What does that friendship look like? This week, I read Tim Keller. He's talking about friendship. And he said, real Christian friendship is marked by two things, vulnerability and consistency. And I read that the first time, and I thought, you know what? I like that. I think I can be a good friend, vulnerability and consistency. But then he goes on to find it, and he says, you know what? Vulnerability is not transparency, and he had me. Because if you know me and even my preaching style and even what we do as a church, like we seek to be very transparent. But transparency and vulnerability are not the same thing. Transparency is like a jewelry store. And you can come in and see anything you want, but it's locked behind glass. You can't touch it. I'll share you what I think and feel about certain things, but I'm not going to let you mess with any of it. You can just look from over there. Transparency is, is actually pretty safe. But vulnerability is that next step. It's when we open our lives to other people. Vulnerability and consistency. To know and to be known in covenant with other people. No division between the weekend or the week. You're invited into my life. That's vulnerability and then consistency. I'm going to keep showing up again and again and again in this covenant. No matter what is said or what is done, we're working hard not to break this fellowship. That's real Christian friendship. And this is the same thing that Jesus invites us to have with him. This is what abiding is, this unbroken communion. For you to know and be known. That when you pray, you don't have to. Jesus says when you pray, don't, don't use the big words, man. Just pray, just pray what you're thinking, what you're feeling. I already know it. Just, let's just talk about it. When you're frustrated and angry and you don't understand and you're confused and you're apathetic or whatever it is, let's just, let's just talk about it as it is. Unbroken communion. I remember when I was a little kid. And it's weird that this, this image is still, like, in my brain. I remember as a little kid, um, and I was going everywhere with Dad. <clears throat> I must have been three or four, I guess. And uh, we would go and, like, you know, just run errands with Dad. And the problem was is almost every place we went into had a counter, and I couldn't see over the counter. You remember that? Is that just me? I was just, I always just wanted Dad to pick me up and hold me at the bank so that I could see what they're doing back there. 
even though I had no, I, I couldn't make any sense of it. I didn't know about profit and loss or deposits and exchanges. I thought a 20 was the same as a quarter. A quarter is actually better because it's shiny and can buy me a piece of gum. So I didn't understand it, but I, but I was close to the Father, and he was showing me, right, what was going. This is this picture of this unbroken communion that we're just with, we're with him, and, and we're, we're seeing some of the things he's seeing, and we can't make sense of them all, as Paul says. We kind of see through a glass dimly. We can't, we, we can't process everything. We're being transformed from one degree of glory to another. It's this slow maturation process, but he's got us, we're with him. We're, we're not, he doesn't call us servants, and we have no idea what's going on. No, he calls us friends. He invites us to know. He shares with us what we should know. It's unbroken communion, but thirdly, it's conscious dependence. And if I'm honest, this is the one, this part of abiding that I'm just terrible at. I'm more comfortable with sporadic dependence, if I'm honest. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a better free diver uh, than I am a scuba diver. You know, the free diver swims up, gets a big breath of air, swims down, plays with the fish or whatever they're going to do. Swims back up and gets another big gulp of air and then goes back and swims for another 60 seconds under the water. But the scuba diver is actually hooked into the life source. And they don't have to come back to the surface every 60 seconds. They, they're breathing air underwater. They can go for 30 an hour underwater depending on the tanks they have. And this is the invitation that Jesus has with him of this constant, this conscious dependence. Again, this is learned best by, by looking again at Jesus and the Father. Being led by the Spirit into the wilderness in the time of temptation at the beginning of his ministry. Being tempted to turn a stone into bread, Jesus clearly says that man cannot live by bread alone, but from every word comes from the mouth of God. In John 4, he's with, the, some, he's with the woman at the well, Samaritan woman. You remember that? <clears throat> the disciples go to get food, and they come back, and Jesus and the Samaritan woman have this incredible in, in, uh, exchange of words, and she comes to faith, and she's going to go tell the whole city, and the disciples are like, Jesus, eat, eat. And he says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Jesus says, what really sustains me more than the bread, more than the food, are obedience to the very words of God. This is what John says here, too. Jesus says, you know what, you know how you know if you're really abiding in me, that you're, gonna, you're actually going to make it a really big deal, that you would live the way of life that I have commanded you to live that i've set the parameters before you this is this is the path that you should walk do you know what god's word says about you believer in jesus can i just remind you of a few things in first john 3 1 he tells you that you're his child in ephesians 1 4 he tells you that you're chosen second corinthians 5 tells you you're a new creation first john 1 9 reminds us that we're forgiven in 2 Corinthians 12, that God is working even in our weaknesses. His power is working perfectly. And 2 Corinthians 3 tells us that we can have real freedom. 
In John 14, he tells us that his spirit would live inside of us. The Great Commission, he would remind us that his spirit will be with us always. See, the words of God actually bring life. The reason why the words of God change everything was because it was the words of God that created the world. They were powerful and creative and sustaining. In chapter 2 of, of the passage we're looking at in verse 14, John seems to get in this like, uh, it's written as like almost a poem or a song <clears throat> that reminds them of his identity. Reminds them of their identity. I'm writing to you little children because your sins are forgiven. He's just reminding them of the truth of what God has already spoken over them. Your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I'm writing you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing you young men because you've overcome the evil one. To you children because you know the father. To you fathers again because you know him who's from the beginning. I write to you young men because you are strong. And the word of God, there's that word again, abides in you. And you have overcome the evil one. It's interesting to me in this passage where he kind of flips it. John does. Jesus does the same thing back in John 15. And the word of God abides in you. Jesus would say in John 15, if you abide in me and my words abide in you. There's something about the word of God itself. Not, not the scripture, the verses, but, but of whom this truth points to. We don't worship the Bible itself. That would be, that would be idolatry. We, we worship the one whom scriptures tell us of, whom they point to. And Jesus says it's pretty powerful that his words are such powerful truth that they read us more than we read it, that they, that they, that they encourage us, they rebuke us, they, they bring conviction, they instill life. Maybe, maybe you've heard the term, the phrase daily bread. It's kind of this idea taken from how God fed the Israelites manna. You remember that, the bread from heaven? As even, I love this, even in their disobedience and their lack of faith, God still took care of them. Their clothes didn't waste away, and he fed them every day with this sweet bread from heaven, heavenly bread, called manna. And he would only allow them to take enough for the day. If they took more, remember, it would rot, except for on the Sabbath day. They were allowed to take two servings the day before, and it would not rot. It was just this incredible thing that was pointing towards something greater. Jesus would actually come, and he would say, I am actually the bread of life. I am the bread that comes from heaven. I am the true manna come from heaven to nourish my people. And this reminder is of conscious dependence, of us depending on him every day. Just like they depended on God to open up the heavens and release the bread, we depend in conscious dependence on God the Father through the work of Jesus every second of every day. Lord, I'm tempted to do this on my own, but, but, but I'm making a decision to rest in you, to depend on you, to look to you, this conscious dependence. The psalmist would say, thou, O Lord, are the lifter of my head. 
Because it's so easy for us to get focused on the here and now and the, the problems and the troubles and the frustration and how everything's not working well. And then, then, and then, then, the, then the Lord just lifts the head. Or in, or in Psalm 73, remember when, when um, Asaph is just so discouraged by all the people who are succeeding. And, he, and he, the, the first several verses are like, man, they just, these people just, I just don't like them. They're just succeeding. Even though they're sinning, Lord, why do you let them do that? And he said, and, and, and then, then he came into the sanctuary. Lifter of the head. Above the muck and the mire. Above the frustrations of daily life in a broken world. We get to lock eyes with the one who created everything once again. And that's what changes everything. It really is what changes everything. Remember, again, I'm, the invitation of Jesus when he invited us to come to me, all who are weary, heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And then remember, he says, take my yoke upon you. Take my yoke upon you. The burden is light. The yoke is easy and the burden is light. What was Jesus saying? He was, this picture of a yoke is where you would put two oxen together. You would yoke them together and connect them to the farming instrument. And their strength is what would, would, would pull it. And this is what Jesus is, an invitation to us and this conscious dependence of abiding with him. Is saying, you know what, Jesus, I'm going to yoke together with you. But you're actually going to be doing all the work. Because I can't do this. And, and, and that's the decision to abide with him as we, we yoke together with Jesus. Now, when we find ourselves out there striving and beat down and burn out, it's because somehow we slipped out of the yoke and we put our own yoke on and we want to do it ourselves. But we go back to John 15, Jesus says, apart from me, you, you can do nothing. Not that you can, you can do a little, you literally, you can't do anything. It, it reminds me of, you know, we'll tear down in a little bit and, um, Hattie Jane always wants to help. You know, she'll come up and she'll say help. And as only she can say it. And you know what she'll do? She'll help us push every case into that thing. And she's not doing the work. She's actually just walking, pushing on the case, thinking she's doing everything. But above her is Kyle Cathcart actually pushing the case. Or Reynolds or Chad. You know, they're the ones actually doing the work, but... Hattie thinks she's doing the work because she wants to help. And we get the case on there. And then, and then Kyle is full of joy because Hattie helped him push the case. And Hattie's full of joy because she got to play a big part. And the case actually went where it went. This is, this, this is a picture I get of conscious dependence. When we yoke ourselves with Jesus, he's the one that does the work. We, we, we in there acting like we're pushing our legs, but we ain't, we're not doing anything. This is the power of Jesus that's actually doing the work, and we get to participate with him in the work. And then when the work's done and people cross the line of faith or, they, or we, see the, the, we see the power of God break addictions or we see marriages restored or we see the gospel go out or we see justice brought or meal served to the home, it is not us doing it. This is why people burn out is because they slip out of the yoke of Jesus and they say, yeah, it's a good idea to put my own yoke on, and now I'm going to do it in my own strength. And God warns us that that never work. He even tells us in the Psalms, like, he takes no delight in the strength of your legs. And that, well, God, I got some pretty good legs, man. I could probably, I probably squat 400. He's like, I opened up my mouth and created the galaxies. That's why there's such a beautiful picture of Jesus saying, 
Come to me. If you're weary or burdened, oh, you've been trying to do this thing on your own. You never meant to do it on your own. You were meant to yoke yourself unto me where the yoke is easy. It fits you well, and the burden is light. How do you know if you're really abiding? I had so much joy doing this this week. I know I'm running out of time. <clears throat> I got these on the screen, and I, I can send them to you. You don't have to write them all down. These are just the promises of God in the epistle of 1 John. The promises of God, when we abide, these things become true in our life. When we abide, verse 5, we walk in the light. Verse 7, we have true fellowship with other people. Verse 9, we walk in forgiveness. 2-1, we have an advocate with the Father. Man, that'll preach. Verse 5, 2-5, we have assurance that we are His. God's love is perfected in us. Also, verse 5, verse 12, our sins are forgiven. Verse 24, we have eternal life. 2-28, we have confidence before God. 3-3, we pursue purity. 3-5, we battle against sin. 3-22, when we abide, we keep His commandments. 3-24, when we abide, we're filled with His Spirit. 4-4, we overcome the evil one. 4-7, we begin to really love each other. 4-17, we have boldness on the day of judgment. 4-18, we don't live in fear anymore. 5-3 and 4, we have faith that overcomes the worlds. 5-13, he answers our prayers. 5-18, he abstains from, we abstain from sin. Isn't that beautiful? Just the promises of God, this invitation of, hey, come get in the yoke with me. Come get connected to the true vine. I'm going to nourish you. I'm going to fill you. I'm going to send my spirit to live within inside of you. He's got the resurrection power coming in with him. He's going to equip you with spiritual gifts. He's going to remind you of your identity. And then you're going to be able to just love and bless the world from this secure servanthood position. Because he's in us. Friends, why, do, why don't we live like this? Why don't I live like this? Just as God is so faithful to do, I had the worst week of my life last week. Because God was trying to show me how often I try to do this on my own. It, it just does. I don't know about you. Let me tell you when I, this is how I know that I'm not abiding. And you could say the opposite of all those things we just said, and that would be true. That instead of walking in light, we walk in darkness. Instead of true fellowship, we have pseudo-fellowship. Instead of forgiveness, we walk in condemnation. Instead of knowing how to advocate with the Father, we try to strive and be our own advocate. Instead of having assurance we're His, we wonder and we doubt our faith. Instead of the love of God being perfected, we think it's, it's something else. Instead of our sins being forgiven, we still feel condemned. Instead of eternal life, we live, for, we live for this world and this life. You could go the opposites of all the things that would be true. But let me just tell you in my own life, these are the tells. When I know I'm not abiding, one, my life is filled with worry. I just worry. And you know, when we worry, we depend like it's all up to us. That we're in the yoke by ourselves. Like the disciples in the ship that was in the storm, remember? Jesus is sleeping in the bottom, and they're like, Jesus, you're our last hope. You got to come. And, you know, as woken up out of a deep sleep on a rocking ship, you're just trying to get your bearings, and he speaks to the winds and the waves. And then what does he say to his disciples? Oh, you have little faith. Why do you doubt? In other words, did you, did, you not, did you not think that I was strong enough and being yoked to me would be enough? 
Worry just has no place in the life of the believer. It just has no place. And listen, again, I have no idea about you. I'm only speaking to myself. This is how the gospel has washed over my own heart this week. Worry has no place in your life, Luke. Instead, every time it creeps in, we bring it back to Jesus. I've told you that prayer, and I pray it all the time, and I pray it multiple times a day. God, I give these problems and these people back to you. I just give them back to you. I'm not going to worry about them. If you put a decision or an action in front of me, if you prompt me, the Holy Spirit, to actually do something, I'll do something. But I'm not doing it in my own strength. I'm doing it because you told me to do it, and I know you're doing it with me. That's, that's how we do it. That's how we overcome worry, and we turn worry in, into worship. Here's the other tale that I know when I'm fearful. When I'm fearful, I know I'm not abiding. Because Jesus clearly says that, and even John's going to say this, perfect love casts out fear. That's what Paul would tell Timothy. Don't give in to the spirit of fear. God, God didn't originate a spirit of fear in you, but a power and love and a sound mind. When I'm fearful, I know I'm not abiding. I'm in my own strength again. The disciples really learned this. They really learned to live in the power of the resurrection and by, uh, by, by abiding in Jesus. Because, because they went from fearful cowards that wouldn't even show up to the cross. And Peter even denying Jesus three times and even cursing the girl that's asking to these incredibly bold martyrs, and they did it in about the span of a month. How could someone change that radically? Because they learned what it meant to really abide in Jesus. Again, when we're fearful, we're not believing that. When we're fearful, we are believing that the world, the flesh, and the devil has the last and greatest word. And that's just not the truth. John would go on to tell us that he that is in you is greater than he is in the world. Here's the third tell in my life. I don't know about you. When I'm striving. When I'm striving, I remember I forgot my identity. When I'm trying to screw something in, but I'm using a hammer. You ever try to do that? There's an actual tool meant to screw a screw in, and it's not a hammer. And you can hit it all you want, and all you're going to do is busting everything up around it. Wasting all this energy. When I'm trying with all my might to fix something, and I just can't fix it. It's like the RPMs in your car. You just, something, something's wrong with the transmission, man. You just keep, you keep redlining. This is not right. This is not, this is not the, the way that God has invited us to live. We're not, we're not in the yoke. We're... But when I abide, I'm reminded I have nothing to earn and nothing to prove. And that produces in me real secure servanthood. Fourth, and then we're going to take communion. Here's the tell that I just know in my life. When I'm, when I'm worrying, when I'm fearful, when I'm striving, here's, here's the fourth, and this might be the most painful for me, when I'm short with other people. Because being short is the opposite of being loving. It's the opposite of joy and patience and peace and kindness that the fruit of the Spirit actually produces in us. It's the opposite of that. And I might use all the excuses that everyone else uses that I've had a hard day and uh, people aren't fair at work and, uh, just, you know, whatever. I'm going to use all those. The only problem with all those excuses are all of the abiding saints who face the most incredible pain and rejection and they did it with so much love. On the hardest days of their life. You think about Jesus on the cross. And just how loving he was. He witnesses some 
guy next to him on the cross and brought him into the kingdom. He's taking care of his mom, and he's forgiving all those that are crucified. He's not short. Well, he's loving because he's connected to the power source. And this is the same kind of life that Jesus invites us into, friends. You can live this way too every day of your life, filled with the love and power and confidence that comes from the Spirit living inside of you. Your life can be a taste of the kingdom of God invading earth. I've been, me and Hud have been watching all these uh, Marvel superhero movies and one of our favorite ones is where, I don't know the guy's name, but he creates a little portal and you can just like go from where you're at to somewhere else. And I just kept thinking about, you know what, this is what the Christian life is supposed to be. We're, we're, we're the portal. Our living rooms are the portal. Our office cubicle, the portal. Our cars is the portal. Well, someone who doesn't know the Lord can step into it and they can be like, wow, things are different here. Your, your dinner table can be the portal. Nothing to earn, nothing to prove, no digs. I just, I just want the love that I have been shown from the Father to flow through me and get all over you. And communion is what reminds us of this very thing. As we prepare to take communion, I often wonder in that first meal with Jesus after the resurrection, you know, they're on the beach. and Yeah, he had had some bread before then, but this is the first one where he like made the meal. And they're going to, their first meal after the communion meal, the first meal together on the beach. Remember the charcoal fire and Jesus with the fish. And, and you know what he did in that communion meal? He reminded them of his love for them. He took Peter back to every time he had denied him and he replaced that Shame that was washing over Peter with, do you love me? Then feed my sheep. My, my call in your life hasn't changed. You failed, you blew it, you busted it up, it's fine. My call hasn't changed. As a matter of fact, remember Jesus told Peter that his faith was going to be sifted. And if Jesus would have come to me and told me that my faith was going to be sifted, I'd be like, all right, Jesus, just, just, just tell it not to happen. But Jesus doesn't take away the temptation. He just says, when you return, you remember what he said? When you return, encourage your brothers. And this is Jesus at this first communion meal after the resurrection, and he's with the people, and he's reminding them of his love, and he's reminding them of the call in their life, that there's meaningful mission in front of them, namely to extend the love of God to other people. And this is what we remember in communion. This symbolically, we take the bread representing the body of Jesus and we ingest it as this symbolic continual feeling, filling of verse 6 in 1 John 2 that we can actually walk like Jesus walked. And then we take the drink, we take the blood and we ingest it and symbolically we're reminded that we're part of God's family. Our sins have been dealt with. Those have been finished. And we're invited to live this life of power as a minister of reconciliation. It's the most beautiful thing. Friends, can I remind you that you're loved? 
God just loves you with more love than you could ever think. Just think about your love for your own kids, and it just pales in comparison to the love of the Father for us. He just loves you. I was reading in John 16 this week where Jesus tells his disciples that they can ask anything and it'll be answered. And then he says, and it won't, your prayers won't just come to me and then I give them to the Father. No, it's, it's, it's powerful. You can just go read it in John 16. He says, no, the Father loves you. Not that the Father loves Jesus and because we're in Jesus and the Father loves us. No, it, it, John 16 says, listen, the Father knows you and he loves you just brought so much encouragement to my heart this week you're loved for those believers in this room you're filled with the power of the spirit with mission and purpose in front of us let me pray God thank you for today Lord if there's those in this room that don't know you and don't know your love they feel like they're on the outside looking in I pray they would take a step of faith today that they would trust that you really love them, that there's nothing to earn and nothing to prove. That Jesus' death on the cross was the all-satisfying work and payment for our sin. And so that's how a sinful people can be a new creation. And that you're working on this even now. You get inviting us to confess our sins, to repent and believe. Lord, I pray that your kindness washes over us as a people today. Lord, and that we would just make a decision today to just spend time with you, to abide with you, to remain with you, to hang with you, to rest with you. We wouldn't leave you in our devotion. We'd just take you everywhere we go. As we take communion, Lord, remind us of your kindness, of your love for us, of the meaningful mission in front of us. Convict of sin. If there's some struggling with sin, would you encourage those that are weary and weak? Or if these people are like me, and I believe a lot of them are, we spend so much of our time trying to do it on our own and with our own strength. Remind us today that we can put down the tools and we can just walk with you. God, I love you. Thank you for the truth of your word, this invitation. I pray we see each other walking with you. It's in Jesus' name, amen. You can come when you're ready. The band's going to sing in a little bit. Uh, Me and a couple others from the prayer team will be in the back if you'd like to pray with someone.